And the Isaiah series is difficult in part because of the sheer length of this book of the Bible. It is a long book, and as well, there are lots of sections of condemnation and judgment, rightly for sin, but as well, and you'll see this in Isaiah 25, 6 through 12, oh, there is hope, there is joy, and there is celebration. And it is wonderful to read about. And so, uh, follow along with me. I'll read Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we ask your spirit to help and guide us that indeed the truths of this passage would be ours today and that you would help us to be a people known for our joy, for our celebration. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were here at the beginning of our worship service, you saw some pictures from our youth going to Colorado on a Reformed Youth Ministries conference, and you saw beautiful pictures of mountains. And as half of Texas ends up in Colorado this week and sometime this summer, you know the mountains have a draw to them, don't they? I mean, they are beautiful, majestic, air-conditioned, and awesome are the mountains. And that drives a lot of Texans to visit Colorado. And here in Isaiah 25, you get this phrase, on this mountain, you get it three times there in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 10. And on this mountain is a metaphor, a literary device that Isaiah uses to point to the majesty and the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and its imposing nature. It is huge, like a mountain, and it is immovable. And so when Isaiah talks about on this mountain, he is talking about the kingdom of God, the program, redemptive program of God, which ends so well for God's people. And the first mention of on this mountain is in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. And there we read, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains 
and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And what that is, that's a picture of the victory, the supremacy of God, that if you're a Christian, you're on the winning team. You're on the winning side. And nothing, nothing can change that. Now, when we come to Isaiah, and I want to help you here interpret this passage when you come to Isaiah 25, because some people will ask you, they will ask you, they will say, do you believe the Bible literally? And, and sometimes it comes across this way. Do you, do you take the Bible literally? And when we come to Isaiah 25, this is a little bit of a question because we're not talking about a literal mountain, are we? What's really behind that question, do you take the Bible literally, is do you take it seriously? If God has said it, do you do it? Do you believe it? That's what people are asking and as responsible biblical exegetes, we want to understand that Isaiah is using a metaphor here. He is pointing to the wonderful future, the wonderful domicile, the mountain of the elect of God and those who have trusted in him is better. This is our destiny, our end, our teleos, as it were, and we are headed to this wonderful kingdom where every right where every wrong will be made right and every tear wiped away. And that is good enough. That is a good enough reason to be a Christian for certain. And I've often wondered, as we think about our own denominationals credentialing system, which I won't bore you with the details, but have you ever thought, what if we measured Christian maturity? What if we credentialed pastors not based on how much they knew about the Bible or theology or church history, but how well they celebrated, how much joy they had. Can you imagine for a moment how this would upend Christendom if we said spiritual maturity is measured by how much joy you have, by how well you celebrate the wonderful truth of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. What about you? And I'm preaching this because I'm, I'm needing to grow in this area, of course. And I bet you need to grow too. You see, life in 2023 kind of beats you up, doesn't it? And we tend towards depression. We tend towards really being down in our circumstances. But here... What we see is arguably one of the most hopeful, joyful, celebratory passages in all of Scripture. What if we measured Christian maturity by how well someone celebrates what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do in the future? So this is your invitation to celebrate. God's victory in Christ gives us hope joy, purpose, perseverance, satisfaction, and fulfillment to the uttermost. I want you to recover your joy. I want you to recover this celebratory aspect of what it means to be a Christian, to be found in Christ. That in the midst of all the darkness and despair and confusion, that we together would move forward with celebration 
and remember all that we have to celebrate because of God's victory in Christ. Well, how do we get there? What does this life of celebration look like? First thing, do you like to eat? I do. It looks like feasting. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Now, here's a few things to notice. It is on this mountain. In other words, it's within this victorious realm of God, His kingdom. And it's the Lord of hosts. Isaiah likes to use different titles for God to communicate something. What is he communicating here? The Lord of hosts is the commander-in-chief name of God. Who is he commanding? He commands a celestial army no earthly enemy or weapon can stand against. And it's through this sovereign power of the Lord of hosts, what is he going to do? He's going to make a feast. And he's going to do it for who? All peoples. Now, we are not universalists, so universalist means that everyone is saved. That's not a correct biblical view. But what this states is the wide-open inclusivity of the invitation of the gospel, that it is wide open. I want to tell you, Christians are the original diversity, inclusion, and equity people. It's right here. Notice I reverse those letters. I like to do that. I like to spell die instead of D-E-I. I like to spell die. Why is that? Because diversity, equity, and inclusion is a parasite. It has attached on to a living organism. Christianity is the original diversity, inclusion, and equity people. And diversity, equity, and inclusion has attached itself onto Christianity to suck life. Because a parasite cannot live unless it's attached to something. But what you have here is through the gospel, you have this wonderful inclusion. All are welcome in Christ to the feast. It's wide open. And that's good news for sinners like us, because if it's wide open, then we can come. Verse 6, what is this feast? It is a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Then we get a repetition of that. Do you notice that in verse 6? of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And the repetition, that couplet there at the end of verse 6 is meant to communicate the top shelf, the best food is going to be at this feast. And in the ancient world, that was a big deal because they struggled to get enough calories. We don't have that struggle anymore. We live in a land of abundance. They didn't have that. And fortunately, they didn't have cardiologists either saying, don't eat the marrow. They loved the fat and the marrow because those were nourishing in the ancient world where they struggled to get enough calories and sustenance. And that's what kind of feast it's going to be. It's going to be the best. And all are invited. And in Christ, you can experience this feast too. It is a celebratory dinner. You know, maybe some of you are going to have lunch together. It is Father's Day, so children complete in absolute obedience today. Tomorrow we'll go back to normal. Rich food, it is a feast. And you know what? We are invited to celebrate this feast because it is a victory feast. God has won. 
and he will win, and we are invited. So I want to impress on you the highest standards, better than you can imagine, is this feast. God is the one who through his power accomplishes it. And it's hard for us to grasp this in the United States because we basically, we have one feast. Thanksgiving, right? One feast. Man, is it stressful, isn't it? Who's hosting this year? Some of you are worried already. Oh, will the turkey turn out? Is politics going to come up? I don't have enough ovens to get all these side dishes done. It is a huge logistical nightmare. So bracket all that out and pretend it doesn't exist. Only the good parts of the feast, that's what's celebrated here. You know, I grew up in a... In a I had a little bit different upbringing than most people. So my dad was from Syria and my mom was from America. And so we would feast. Arabs know how to feast. The Bible is a Middle Eastern book. And Arabs can feast. And my dad would invite his friends over and the women would be in the kitchen just loving, making all these dishes. And we would feast. And when you were full, someone would tell you, you haven't eaten enough. You need to eat more. You know, this is very sort of Arab. And of course, politics was the best subject to talk about. They're Arabs. And we had a great time, just like you see reflected in the hospitality of ministry of Tr at Trinity when the women are in the kitchen. Man, it's fun. Y'all are having a great time catching up, community, all these things. It's a raucous time. And that's what the feast represents. And sometimes we have to borrow, as I did in my, just telling you there, borrow from a different culture to really embrace the celebration of a feast. And the amazing thing of this feast, there in verse 6, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. It is God who sets this feast. God the Father serves Sinners like us by setting the table for us through the person of his son. He welcomes us to the feast. We could say God condescends to sinners by making a feast for us and inviting us to this feast through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, usually when we talk about condescending, that's a negative thing, right? You know... Stop talking to me in a condescending way, right? We use that. But actually, this concept of condescending really relates to the Scripture because God is so high and holy, He must lower Himself and condescend to us, and He accomplishes this through the person of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, He would have nothing to do with us. Now, after the service... You may talk to a child, you may talk to a child there in the foyer outside, and you'll probably do something like this, and I hope you don't talk to me this way, because that would be condescending, but you, what do you do? You, oh, kind of get on their level. Wouldn't that be weird if you talked to me this way? <laughs> you look so cute. And, but, but God has to do that. He has to come down and condescend to us. It is amazing how he serves us. 
that he sets the feast up, that he makes the feast and serves those who are least deserving. He serves us the best food, the best wine in this feast. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, this feast is yours. It's a feast that points not just to this table as a foretaste of the feast that would happen in Revelation 19, 6 and 7, the marriage supper of the Lamb, because in the, in the Middle Eastern world, the best feast was at a wedding. And so that is the picture in Revelation 19, 6 and 7 of the ultimate feast and victory and opportunity for us to celebrate. When we enjoy, we, we are a church that likes to eat together, and maybe that's why we get along so well. But that fellowship that we have, it's something to be celebrated and to have joy and enjoyment in that. And so when we come together, it can be a wonderful time of fellowship and feasting and joy because God has set the table for us. He has served us. He has condescended to us in Jesus Christ, and so we feast. So what's the life of celebration look like? If we were to measure maturity in the Christian life by the joy and the celebration we have, we can certainly celebrate this feast, but as well, we celebrate all that God has done on this mountain. Look at verses 7 and 8. What has God done? What are our reasons for celebration? First, in verse 7, we read, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Again, you get that inclusivity that speaks to the sovereign power of God. No one is, is left out. It's all peoples. It's all nations. God's power can extend to the furthest reaches of this globe and this universe. And what is he going to do? He's going to swallow up the covering and the veil. So the covering and the veil is anything which holds, comes between us and God. A covering or a veil covers over something, preventing it from seeing, or it covers up something in the greatness of something, and you remove the cover to see uh, the greatness. In the Hebrew, there's some, uh, this might be pointing to the uh, idols that came between people in their relationship with God that prevented them from experiencing the fullness of who God is because the worship and dedication that was due to God alone leaked out to these other idols. So that's another way of speaking about the covering or the veil. Either way, God is going to remove them. He's going to take care of whatever comes between people and his greatness and worship. So you might think about it for a moment if you have a fancy car or a fancy motorcycle. More power to you. I don't know why you haven't let me borrow it. But probably you have that car or fancy motorcycle covered over, don't you? And if you want to take it for a spin, what do you have to do? You have to remove the cover. And that's what we're seeing revealed here in Scripture. God himself removes whatever comes between us and him that we might see clearly and experience fully the greatness of who he is, the magnitude of his love and his compassion for sinners like us. That is one reason to celebrate, isn't it? Oh, but it gets better. 
in the words of these TV commercials, wait, there's more. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. Oh, that is good news to those of us who mourn and are grieving. He will swallow up death forever. Uh, what's meant here? He will devour death. He will take care of it. Not only will he take care of everything that comes between us and him, the covering, the veil, swallowing up those things, he'll swallow up death forever. It means he is greater than death, yes, but it also has this imagery of devouring, making disappear. You want to see something disappear? Give me some good pie. Maybe buttermilk pie. Give me a piece of cake. Put it on a plate. I'm going to make it disappear. I'm going to swallow it up. Some of you are saying, oh, there's too much icing on this cake. I'm going to leave the icing. I'm not going to leave it. That's the good stuff. I'm going to scrape it up so there is no sign that there was a piece of cake. That's what the scripture is talking about here. Totally removing the effect of death in our lives and the consequences of death and that loss and that grief that we feel, he will swallow up death forever. Why do we not celebrate that enough? Is that not a cause for Christians to celebrate? And then we see in verse 8, the Lord God will wipe away tears from whom? All faces. There's our diversity, inclusion, and equity. All faces. He's going to wipe away these tears. And the idea here is, fathers, it's Father's Day. That's your reminder there. But you, your kid comes to you, and they're crying, and something happened. And what do you do? You, know, you assure them. You put your arm around them, maybe wipe their tear off. As our Heavenly Father, God has, He is responsive and has compassion on us. He is not too busy running the universe that He would not, in compassion and love, wipe away our tears, the tears from all faces. And then look at here in verse 8, the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. That means the, the shame, the regret, the embarrassment, all of it, he will take away from all the earth. And look at here at the end of verse 8, for the Lord has spoken. That's a way of saying it's guaranteed. It's going to happen. God said it. He never breaks his promises. He's going to do it. You know, sometimes in our Christian life, we get ridiculed maybe for the stance we take, or we get called bigot or Maybe we get called uh, a hater or that we don't love people. This is part of the reproach, part of the reproach of being a Christian. There is this sort of shame that gets heaped on us, rightly so, wrongly so, and then we experience shame as well whenever we sin and due to our, uh, could be due to our stupidity, could be due to our sinful uh, ways we experience shame. And the good news of the gospel, it's going to be taken away. It's going to be dealt with. The reproach that was due to us has fallen on Christ and been removed from us. And it's one reason we, we celebrate. You know, being a TCU fan, I know what reproach is. And I learned, between being a TCU fan and a Cowboy fan, I learned to manage disappointment. 
And of course, in January, you know, TCU playing for all the marbles, my alma mater. And it had been since 1938 that TCU has won a national championship in football. And I don't know about you, but I don't remember uh, that victory. And so they were, they were playing uh, Georgia. And uh, we were going on vacation as a family. And so we brought with us all the TCU gear. You know, which TCU gear did we bring? We brought it all. Why was that? Because after the TCU victory, we were going to wear all this gear all week long on vacation. And wherever we went, it would be, yeah. You know, TCU hat, shirt, yeah. (laughs) This is us. And of course... I'm still waiting for that game to be played because my TCU Frogs didn't show up, did they? They handily lost. And in fact, it was a noticeable, terrible loss. At least if they kept it close, we might have worn the gear still. So the next day, we take the gear, we put it in the back part of the trunk, never to be seen again on that vacation because there was reproach with that loss. And, of course, I go to our presbytery meeting, a few, our regional church meeting a couple weeks later. Got a couple Georgia guys in our presbytery. They're wearing all the gear, not TCU gear, and bragging about it. And the good news of the gospel is whatever hope you have placed in God, whatever struggle you have had, the reproach will be removed. The shame, the embarrassment, the disappointed expectations, all of it, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. There will be no disappointment in heaven where God will wipe away every tear and finally deal with our enemy, death. God is victorious, and nothing can erase his victory. And my encouragement to you this morning is, let's live like that. Let's celebrate like that. Let's have joy like that together. So we're talking about celebration and joy in the Christian life. And we're talking about the feast that we look forward to, the celebration, because God has dealt with our greatest enemy, death. He has dealt with our reproach, our shame. He has dealt with that whichever comes between him and his people, verse 7, and he has wiped away all of our tears. That would be enough to celebrate, but here's what I want to leave you with. We've got to hold on for this celebration. This is in verses 9 through 12. Look at verse 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And the idea here is this is our God. In other words, this is the God whom we follow. This is what he is like. He is awesome in all that he has done, the reason we celebrate. So this is our God, and we have waited for him. To wait here, 
usually we kind of think of waiting as this passive inconvenience that happens to us on the way to something good. That's what we think of waiting. It's an inconvenience for us. But really, the biblical idea of waiting is to actively trust and express faith on God and hang on to Him for the blessing. A couple passages, uh, Isaiah 8, 17, waiting on the Lord, and then three more, Isaiah 30, 18, Isaiah 33, 2, and Isaiah 4, 40, 31, all have this imagery of trusting, waiting on God. And this is what we are called to, to trust in Him, to wait on Him. And what I'm doing here is I'm saying that we are called to hang on for the blessing, that it looks like we are losing. It looks like things are getting bad. But we are called like Jacob was in Genesis 32 to hang on for the blessing, that by virtue of the goodness of the victory God has given us in Christ, we would be strengthened to hang on. Of course, what happens in Genesis 32? Jacob wrestles with an angel. The angel reaches out, touches Jacob's hip. Does Jacob give up? Ooh, that hurts. Does he give up? No, he tenaciously hangs on with a prevailing faith, saying in Genesis 32, verse 26, I will not let you go until you bless me. Do we have that kind of faith in our Christian life that hangs on to God no matter what, hanging on for the blessing? Because you see, the blessing does come. Look in verse 10, God defeats Israel's enemies. God defeats his enemies and our enemies. Moab here is trampled down. And in fact, the imagery given to us in verse 11 is of a swimmer. How hard is this? Put your hands in the water and go like this. That is not hard. And verse 11 is meant to communicate the ease with which God destroys all his and our enemies. And we read in verse 11, the Lord will lay low Moab's pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. Verse 12, the high fortifications of his walls, in other words, Moab's, what's God going to do? Bring them down, lay low, cast to the ground, to the dust. That is not too hard for God to defeat anyone. No fortification in this culture, in this world, in this society can stand up before God. He will bring the victory. You know, off the coast of Corpus Christi last week, I don't know if you saw this, they were three friends out sailing 12 miles from Corpus Christi. Now I'm going to fill in imaginatively some of the gaps because reporting is so terrible today. Okay, so I'm taking a little poetic license here. So three friends sailing 12 miles off the Corpus coast of Corpus Christi. And one of the friends, let's call him Joe, goes for another beer. And he falls into the ocean. He does not have a life preserver on. And of course, he's by the cooler, so at least he has the wherewithal and the mental fortitude to grab the cooler as he's going into the ocean. So there he is. He's floating in the ocean. Coolers float, by the way. Keep that in mind if you need to. He's hanging on to this cooler. 
And for about 90 minutes, we're not sure what happened on the boat, but eventually the other two friends noticed they were probably going for another beer and, hey, where'd the cooler go? (laughs) Hey, by the way, where's Joe? (laughs) And I'm sure they looked on the boat and, well, Joe was hanging on for 90 minutes before the call went through to the Coast Guard. Uh, We need you to pick up our friend. Or maybe they said, we need you to pick up our cooler. (laughs) Anyway, the Coast Guard went out. They rescued him, got him, put him back on the boat. I'm not sure if they were still friends after that. But nonetheless, he was rescued. And I want to tell you this, this idea of waiting, the scriptural idea, the Christian idea of waiting is like Joe holding on to the cooler. Holding on like your life depended on it. Remember, he didn't have a life preserver. That cooler became his life preserver. Are you holding on to God like that? Trusting in him with a prevailing, victorious faith made so, not because we're strong people, but because we have a strong, gracious, loving Savior who lived the perfect life we never could, died the death we deserve, and rose again as the exclamation point on the victory of God. Let's celebrate. As Christians, let's move forward today and this week in the mode of celebration. We have a God who sets a table for us, and this table here will enjoy momentarily. This table here is meant to point forward to that table in the future where every tear will be wiped away, where death will finally be swallowed up in victory, and all God's enemies will be defeated. That's a reason we can have joy and we can celebrate today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have given us every reason in Christ to celebrate and to have joy, and we pray that wherever we lack that joy, that you would help us as your people to embrace the victory that you have given us in Christ. Remind us, no matter how dark our circumstances, no matter how difficult the trials we are in, no matter the level in the pain of grief we experience, show us the way to celebrate because you indeed invite us to a feast. We thank you for this good news that you will swallow up death and victory and that you have compassion on the likes of us such that you will wipe away all our tears and take away our reproach. You will, in point of fact, defeat all your and our enemies and no fortification in society or culture can stand against you. We rejoice in that and we pray that the celebration and joy of who Christ is, and all that you have done for us and will do for us and are doing for us would come to the forefront of our lives as we experience joy and as we celebrate, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.